I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. I'm really excited today. We have a guest, Kim Weinreb, and she is a listener of our podcast. I love having listeners of our podcast come on and share their stories. Yes, thank you, Kim, for being willing to join us and share maybe what you've learned and what you can help the rest of us learn. And we're all in this great journey of trying to figure life out, right? It's wonderful when people are willing to share a little bit of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kim, tell us a little bit about you and your family. Um, I currently live in Peachtree City, Georgia, which is about 30 miles south of Atlanta. And our little town was one of the first planned communities in the United States. So it's built entirely on 100 miles of golf cart paths, which is really fun. You can just go anywhere you want in town on the golf cart. And there are thousands of golf carts in our town. That is fun. I've never even heard of that. We have to go look it up. You will. It's really great. Um, My husband and I have been married for Uh, I don't want to have to do math, 26 years, I think, and I've got two kids. Sam is 23, and my daughter, Abby, is 20, and she's currently a sophomore at Rose-Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana. Oh, very cool. that's great. So we got to talking, and you were telling me about your son, Sam. Yes. Let us know that story. How did it begin? I assume this really started with pregnancy. It did. We had a miscarriage in 98 and then got pregnant not too long after and very excited, you know, because you tell everyone and then things sometimes don't work out. And so we kind of kept it hush hush. And so everything went totally normal throughout most of the pregnancy. And I went to my eight month appointment and thankfully my husband was there. He usually went to all my appointments. And for whatever reason, I always felt like my belly looked lopsided. So the doctor said, well, I think the baby is head down. We did not know if it was a boy or a girl at the time because we wanted to be surprised. And so she's like, well, let me send you just, you know, right next door to get an ultrasound. We'll just confirm position. And we went next door and the lady's doing the ultrasound and she's taking her time. And I wasn't really paying attention until she said, why don't you go and sit in her office for a minute? Like, okay. So we went, sat in the office, waited for the doctor to come in. She came in, shut the door, and she said, well, there's a problem with the baby. The head is measuring too big for its body. So her initial thought was hydrocephalus. And this is early on for Internet. I think we barely had Google at the time in um, 1999. So 
she sent us home. She was trying to secure an appointment up at um, Elias Hospital with one of the neonatologists up there. And so we Googled, which we shouldn't have done. But then we're like, well, if this is hydrocephalus, you know, it's manageable. We can figure this out. Um, and then my husband decided, you know, we're not going to wait. So he made some phone calls. And we finally got in, I think, a day or two later up to LDS Hospital and went in. They did an ultrasound, and he had to leave and go look in some books because he was a little confused at what he was seeing. So they thought maybe it was a congenital form of hydrocephalus called Dandy Walker, but they needed more confirmation. So we said, come back the next day. They needed to do a cord centesis, which means you know, putting the needle in the belly but taking blood from the umbilical cord, but they need two doctors to do that. So went in the next day, you know, a little panicked about uh, the procedure, and the doctor said, you know, I'm not going to mess with this. If there's blood in the baby's head, we don't want to mess with that. So they sent me up for an MRI up at the University of Utah, and then a day or two later, um, we met with a variety of doctors and our friend who's a nurse for them to share the information they found, which he had had a stroke, they think about five to six months gestation. Wow. And I then have we never had to go into planning phases. The I never baby had in either. utero had a stroke. Mm-hmm. Oh, my yeah. goodness. And I think it happens. It's not common, but I think to find it before the baby's born is a little bit on the rarer side. Wow. So then what? What did they tell you? You're still pregnant, but getting closer and closer to your due date. Do you Do you go through to full term? What happens next? No, they wanted, I think all this happened within a week from... May 18th, May 27th, when he was born, they wanted to do an amniocentesis because they didn't want any respiratory issues with lungs that are underdeveloped. So they did that, and his lungs looked good. And so he um, was born by C-section three and a half weeks early up at the University of Utah, which was not in my plan, you know, when you tour the birthing center at what was Cottonwood Hospital back in the day. University of Utah was not exactly my first choice, but, you know, you're connected with primary children's and they're really marvelous staff and physicians up there. Actually, those rooms, I used to be a doula and those rooms are small. uh And so they probably seem really unattractive to a lot of laboring moms. But honestly, it is the best place to give birth in this state. I've attended births from Logan all the way down to Utah County. The rooms may not be ideal as far as like they're not a birthing suite necessarily, but the services provided, especially when you have high needs or a high risk mom or baby, they Mm -hmm. are beyond. They're awesome. So tell us when your baby boy is born, what kind of complications, what do you know right away? How are you feeling? How are you and your husband handling this? You've just come off of a miscarriage. You're still young and married and excited about this new baby. That's a lot to process as a young adult. It is. You know, we went from planning a nursery to possibly planning a funeral because they gave him a 50% chance of survival. And if he did survive, he would be severely disabled. And so those are, you know, what you're walking into the hospital with. But, you know, his APGAR scores were good at birth. He cried. They passed him through the little window from surgical suite into the NICU there. And the doctor there, the neonatologist, said that he could notice a little bit of facial difference from the side. I wouldn't have picked that up, and I don't think I've ever picked that up. But he he only spent a week at Primary Children's, which 
truly was a blessing. He just needed yeah. to be monitored, made sure he ate, maintained his temperature. But all the other kids that were with him in his room, he was probably, I'm not going to say the most healthy, but some of those kids were on ventilators right. and sedated. And so we, we truly yeah. felt grateful that, you know, we only spent a week considering. So what was the problems that he had immediately? What Was there any significant signs immediately? Were you able to breastfeed or did you bottle feed? Breastfeeding was a challenge just because when you're in the hospital for a week and you're trying to travel up and back and forth, it right. gets to be a bit of a challenge. So that didn't last really long, but he did have hydrocephalus, which means, you know, water on the brain is what they call it. But when he had the stroke, the blood just kind of created blockages in his brain so that the cerebrospinal fluid, which is supposed to come through the brain and um, has got clogged. And so they had to put a shunt in when he was about one month old. Oh, so they my did goodness. Brain shirt surgery. And that's scary to hand off your teeny tiny Terrifying. baby. Yeah. You know, one month in, he did very well. We went home the next day. And, you know, you just have to start figuring it out. We didn't know any different. You know, this was our first baby. Sure. So this is kind of just what we did. He had um, nurses come in, occupational therapists, physical therapists. You know, we had a lot of in-home visits. And then we had, on occasionally, we would go up to primary children to, and do neonatal follow-up program, which you see a battery of specialists, and they, they test them for different things and make sure they're developing best they can depending on the situation i met a lot of kids in there in that program so, so at really this time what, what do you know like okay he has had hydrocephalus but he's eating we're taking him home we're doing his care does it feel like you have a relatively i know it's not healthy but a relatively healthy is this somewhat normal other than all of these tests or are there other problems going on with, like, how you are ma- managing care for him? No, I mean, he ate well. He slept well. Um, you know, as you start as you started to get older, some of the things, like, he never crawled because his right side was affected by the stroke. Just like you would see in an elderly patient, you know, his right side did not function well. He always had his right hand in a fist. So crawling wasn't something he never did. Um, he scooted on his rear end. And that's how he got around. He needed glasses at a very young age. Um, and he also had eye surgery, I think, at 19 months because um, oh. his, his eyes shake back and forth all the time. And they were trying to fix that with eye muscle surgery. It didn't end up helping. But, you know, you try all this stuff. Yeah, you try uh, all the things trying to help him have as, as the mm-hmm. best chance he can. So they gave you a 50% chance of survival before he was born. Did they tell you at birth that he would then have a very challenging life, or was it really just discovering one thing after another as time went by? You know, I think doctors like to guess, but they don't know. You know, they right. don't know. And and so you just we just went on and just did all the therapies. You know, we just did different things. We did swim lessons. We did all the things that any typical parent does. We just had to monitor a little bit quicker um, on some things. He didn't say a word until he was three everything was pointing and grunting but you know I worked a lot with him doing showing the alphabet and he he knew all of his letters at a young age but he couldn't say them and his first word actually 
as much as it breaks my mom's heart, was Annie, which was Aunt Annie. Oh, how cute. And his <laughs> second word was Bob Evans because he loved watching Bob Evans on Fox. Oh, my goodness. What is it there? 13? Fox 13. Fox 13. We've got to let Bob, Bob know. Evans yeah. For whatever reason. Anyway, so he started to get language. You know, he, he was signed up for early intervention there. He went to a preschool at 2, and then he transferred to another preschool at Midville Elementary. We were living in Midville at the time. And therapy all the time, you know, our whole life really has been just therapeutic is what it's been. Thousands probably of appointments for him over the the last years. But he was so happy and so kind and sweet and funny and just darling as he was growing up. People just loved him and, and gravitated toward him, and they still do. But, you know, we just did what any parent would do day by day, figuring things out and and that's just what you do. And then it sounds like before long, you bring Abby into the family, right? They're about three years apart, did you say? Yeah, so you've she got was a... born in 2002. Okay, so three or four years. So you've got a developing child that's got some some limitations or some special needs. And then how about Abby? Did she, did she kind of follow more of a normal progression? Were there any dangers or complications with her pregnancy or birth? No, that went fairly normal. They did take her two weeks early because we did see the neonatologist again. For her, and he said, I don't want you going over 38 weeks. So I did have a C-section with her. Just to be careful. And Yeah. And when she was three weeks old, of course, my husband was out of town. And Sam started having strange behaviors. I didn't know what was going on. Talking really fast, increased heart rate, thought he was going to throw up. So I haul up the newborn and the three-and-a-half-year-old primary children's. And um, after some... I would say mistakes on some of their part. We finally found out he had seizures starting at that age as well. Oh my goodness. So that was another thing we added to the list. And and then so you've just, got a you new know, baby. Full life yeah, a new baby to care And a new for. baby. Yeah. Wow. This... How was that pregnancy for you? You know, it was we were nervous to have another I would baby imagine. have a miscarriage and then you have Sam, you're like, Oh all right, the third time's got to be a germ. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, looking for something uneventful. Yeah, I can imagine that would be rough. We need to take a break. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. back oh my goodness I can't imagine what it would be like you're navigating this child and the situation that has been dealt and finding out that you have a new 
baby that you're having and all of the stress that just comes with pregnancy anyway in the most ideal of times. But also your hands are really full. So I can't imagine the extra stress of being concerned, like, is this going to happen again? Were they telling you, like, statistically, this was a stroke, it's not very common, it's unlikely to happen again in this pregnancy, or were they monitoring you like a high, high-risk high pregnancy? I, I wasn't monitored any differently, I don't think. I did see the neonatologist, I think, maybe once or twice, just to double-check some things, but everything progressed normally. And we did do some testing. Both my husband and I had blood draws. I don't know exactly for genetic, what they were looking for. Genetic testing? Yeah. To see if, yeah. One thing that they threw out was factor five lighted, and I don't know if that's a, a bleeding disorder, but they all, that came back negative. It's just what happened in his little brain for whatever reason. And I didn't feel anything different. I didn't notice, you know, it wouldn't have been something that probably anyone would have noticed. But truly grateful we found out that it was a controlled situation when he was born versus you know, having a traumatic birth and then that could have just ended so tragically. Sure. Right. So so yeah. tell us what what is the last twenty years looked like? I mean you've got this little baby, you've you mentioned now you've got Abby. What is Sam's childhood and, and even now into young adulthood been like? What effect has that stroke that he had while you were still pregnant with him had on him? 20 years later, what, what are kind of some of these longer term and, and the journey that you and your family have taken? We moved to Georgia. My husband's from Georgia, actually. So we moved to Georgia in 2004, right before my son started kindergarten. And my daughter was 18 months at the time. And, and we've loved Georgia, you know, but when you move with a typical child, you know, you find a dentist and a pediatrician and, you know, we had to find a whole bunch of different specialists. And I, I feel like the transition went pretty smoothly. And sometimes you don't know you need a specialist until you need a specialist, like when his shunt malfunctioned. Mm, yeah. Went to the ER and they're oh, like, oh, terrifying. he needs revision. Yeah. How old was he when that yeah. happened? He was eight. So truly, oh my goodness. it's a miracle he went from one month old to eight years old with the same shunt. And so then and they, they had only to replace one part. Wow. Yeah, they replaced the part um, in his belly. I know there's two parts, the part so in the you, head and then the tubing. You mentioned that you moved to Georgia shortly before Sam started kindergarten. Was he able to go mm-hmm. to a traditional school setting? He was. He did have an IEP, Individualized Education Plan, Program, <laughs> how long it's been. There were goals and things in place. He did mostly special education and was pulled out for specials, is what they call him here. You know, my whole goal of his education was I want him to be happy and what what he can learn, he can learn, which would which was yeah. great, and have a positive and experience. Some, mm-hmm. And I just wanted him to be loved and and taken care of. And we made it through to the very beginning of fourth grade in public school. And I will say, education is a huge problem for probably most parents who have children with special needs. Yeah, just the needs cannot be met. Um, whether it's money, system. whether it's staffing. It's just a challenge across the board, across the country, across the world. And we were, well, there's very limited special needs schools, let alone ones that can take, you know, physical issues as well as uh, developmental issues. But we found a small little school in Tyrone, Georgia, and they were willing to take him, which we were so grateful. They just opened, and I think they only had like six or seven students, and 
He got in, and we spent 12 years at Clearwater Academy. All the therapies were done at the school, which is a big deal because we were doing therapy six times a week after wow. school, which is and exhausting. And trying to fit it in. Yeah. Yeah, so every day after school, and then I dragged Abby with me, and she was literally raised in a waiting room. Yeah. And you would probably see that for most siblings. Right. Of children. Yeah. Um, the secondary impact there. of those special needs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's enormous. I remember going down to say, okay, we need to go to therapy, and Abby just started crying. She's like, I don't want to go to therapy. Oh. You know, it's just, it's how it was. It's how our life was, and... And hopefully she's forgiven us all <laughs> for that, mm-hmm. bless her heart. So with Clearwater Academy, this was a, a school, but more than a school. It could have his therapies and his different treatments and things. Was it something that you took him to in the morning and picked him up in the afternoon? Yeah. Okay. It was a typical school day, but we... But it could incorporate the different needs. Wow. Yes. It made for very long days. My We split the driving, so my husband drove in the morning and then I drove in the afternoon, but that's, okay. that's a lot of miles and a lot of time in the car, but it was certainly worth the education and, you know, the break from having to do constant therapies outside of school. Right. No, and let that be part of his day and hopefully a positive experience. What, mm-hmm. what has it looked like? You said you were there for 12 years. Uh, where is yes. Sam now? What is, what is life looking like for Sam now as he's in his young adulthood? He's, he's out of that academy and that scholastic setting. What are some of his abilities or limitations? What is, what is daily life looking like for him and for you? I imagine you're his full-time caregiver. I am, yes. You know, in a special needs world, when you leave the school system, whether it be private or public, we like to lovingly call it falling off a cliff because you really do lose many, many resources, and there's just not a lot of support or services once you become an adult in a special needs world. Right. You Um, talked about the struggles you face in public school, but then there's even fewer once you age out of that time. Yes, correct. And you're kind of on your own to sort that out. Nobody tells you, all right, here's, here's how you apply for Social Security, or here's the phone number for a vocational rehab, or you need to apply for the Medicaid waiver. There's just this entire new world that you're just kind of thrown into. And so how really did you know how to navigate that? Did you, did you find other families? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you figure that out? Do you find out after the fact, maybe you weren't aware of a resource that you could have had available? What does that journey look like trying to get your child the care that they need and that could be available to them? Well, some things I just kind of sorted out on my own. I either Googled it or, or heard about it for whatever reason. When he was little, I never talked to any of the parents in the waiting room. I don't know why. And then as he got a little bit older and we moved here, I started having conversations with parents. And then, you know, you talk to other parents at the school. So I just kind of started doing my own thing. I'm like, I need to apply for the Medicaid waiver, which provides respite, community outings, a variety of things. But you can apply at any time. But there's, I don't know, 10,000 people on the wait list. Wow. So whether we ever get funded for that, my guess is going to be a no, but I just like to check everything off the list because maybe, just maybe someday, his name will come up. And so I just started doing all the things, applying for Social Security after he turned 18, vocational. I just started figuring the things out. I went to a couple transition meetings, and one of the biggest problems I personally see is the lack of housing 
So right. it's, I mean, you can you can throw a rock at 15 senior citizen centers or assisted living centers, but there's nowhere for these young adults with developmental disabilities to go. Wow, you're right. And there's 90% of, I'm going to say kids, they're not kids, they're adults, live at home with their parents. Because there's just not really another option, right? No, and what options there they're are, good options. they're limited. Yeah. They're not good options. Or, and, and I would say most of the good options are started by parents. Oh, really? Because they see the need. And they and create they an opportunity. building from there. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I've called many of them across the country, and this has been several years, but every single one of them had a wait list. Some of them were 10, 11 years long. No one's moved in five years. And they're, they're expensive. They run about very average $4,000 a month. My goodness. So if you do the math, which is it's not 50 good. 50 grand a year. For 50 years, yeah. you're talking $2.5 million for a lifetime of care, which is not feasible. It's not doable for most so what, families. What does his care look like? Can you walk us through on a daily basis now at this age? You said he's 26 now, right? Or 20, he's 23. 23, sorry. Okay, mm-hmm. so he's 23. Yeah. I do not have a special needs adult child. I think a lot of our listeners do not have that experience in their own home. Can you paint a picture for us what just the day-to-day care looks like one day on a normal day? Not necessarily a terrible day where everything goes wrong, but what is that list of... <laughs> life like on a regular day for you and Sam? You know, he's very um, opinionated right now. And so some days are much harder than others. He likes to sleep in. He loves his iPad. I still help him with shower. He can grow a beard in a day. And I'm not joking when I say that. He could shave (laughs) twice a day. So I, I maintain that. I help him with showers, some toileting. He can dress himself. He can get himself a bowl of cereal. He's very social, very talkative, very outgoing. He does have a job at a bowling alley, which he loves, and they love him. They are his family. They have He had a seizure there recently, and I'll tell you what, some of these older gentlemen were crying and texting me and concerned because they just love him so much. And mm-hmm. that has been a huge blessing. So he does have his job. We were doing, he just finished Miracle League softball, and he went to Special Olympics. Um, you know, he can't ride a bike. He can't drive. He can't. There's a lot of things. If it requires two hands, he cannot do because he only has one side that functions one very well. Works. Wow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you were to walk around and the grocery store, some people probably would not think unless they had a conversation with him because he loves to talk about all of his favorite things, which are mash. Guy Fieri and Triple D, um, Reed Drummond, and the Pioneer Woman. He loves food shows. Um, <laughs> I love that. But to physically look at him, I might, I might think he's another, just an, an average American male young adult. If I just saw you passing at the grocery store, I might not notice the difficulty lying beneath the surface. Correct. Yeah. If you notice his hand, maybe, okay. um, or had a conversation, you would probably quickly like, oh, okay. Much, much more in the develop in the development and in the in the ability of what he he can and can't do on his own and for himself. Yeah, it's like raising a perpetual child. Yeah. You know, he's I don't know eight to ten. I'm just going to throw out an age. Okay. You know, right? He still likes to watch Thomas, but he can answer a lot of questions on Jeopardy or solve many puzzles on Wheel of Fortune. He just 
it's just funny how our brains work. So some of it's developed quite well and some of it still is, is, is back at a younger development age. For sure. All right, we're going to take one more break and then come back. I, my heart goes out to you just for the physical side of this. Even if you could somehow remove all the worry and emotion as a mother, which of course you cannot, but even if you could, just the physical exhaustion of having a perpetual eight-year-old in the home that year after year needs your help with, like you said, you're helping him shower sometimes with toileting, you're helping with, with everything that's exhausting, that's demanding. There's limited resources that you, you can't even find. And if you could find them, you can't afford them because they're astronomically expensive. When we come back, we'd love to hear you tell us what you have learned through this journey and particularly what resilience and skills you have developed while being Sam's mom and being his advocate and his, his champion through these last 23 years. We'll be right back. All right, Kim, bring us back to today. Tell us what have you learned about resilience? And then let's talk a little bit about what it is you're now doing to help other families who are in situations like yours. But first tell us, I imagine over 23 years, you have a life full of lessons learned and and probably more than we could ever have time to talk about on the air today. But can you speak specifically to resiliency tools that you've learned through raising Sam and advocating for him and navigating this journey? Yeah, what I noticed over time that I I was personally being prepared to be his mom. I took all the classes to be a nurse. I couldn't get into nursing school for four times. I did an EMT class. I volunteered in the emergency room. I did all the things to try and get into nursing school. And it just it never panned out. And I think because for my spiritual belief that the Lord was preparing me for him. And... Um, and so what I've learned, of course, you know, not just the basics of how to care for a child with special needs, because that's different for every special needs parent, to take one day at a time. You're going to have some pretty lousy days. You're going to have some wonderful days. And I often say to myself, okay, tomorrow's bound to be better. So one day at a time for me is just kind of how I approach it. And a couple of things, because I didn't talk to many parents when he was younger, Facebook wasn't around. There just wasn't that connection that we have nowadays to find a support group, to find your village. Do you have a friend or a neighbor who can offer some respite, your church, your community? What is available in your community to help help with your child, whether it be Miracle League, whether it be Special Olympics, whatever it is, find what is local to you. It's always been important for me to exercise, and I'm not, like, super good at it, but Every morning at 6 a.m., I am up either on the treadmill or outside, depending on the weather, because I'm a fair weather runner. Um, so am I, girl. But that so time is I. important to me. <laughs> it's the only time I have really tr- truly to myself to do something for me. And so I enjoy, I don't love getting up early, but I make it a priority for me. I try to do some self-care on occasion, whether that's my exercise or to read. I'm rereading Harry Potter. I'm on book seven, finally. I take golf cart rides with my dog. I love birds and looking for the birds. Just the little things that will take me away for just a few minutes to just kind of recenter myself. So I do those things. And I know for women, 
and moms, we are not good at asking for help, but we have to ask for help. You know, there are no super moms. I'm not a super mom. We're all just doing the very best we can every single day. And I also would say get a therapist because these are some heavy, heavy things we have to go through on a daily basis. What could be 50, 60 years and beyond. And I think it's helpful to talk to a professional. The never ending nature of that. I love what you've shared. So many things that um, clearly would apply to someone who's also raising a special needs child. But I think what you've mentioned applies to anyone trying to get through anything. We all need to find Mm -hmm. a village. We all need to take it one day at a time. And it's really easy to get overwhelmed if you try to solve the world's problems today. Um, The physical exercise, getting your body moving to kind of help keep your body in line with your spirit or your soul or whatever you call it. The importance of self-care and asking for help, whether it's a friend or a therapist or some of both. I think those tips you've (laughs) shared are valuable for all of us, regardless of what our specific circumstance are in life. So thank you for sharing those. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing to now help other parents in situations like yours. You've mentioned several times today the difficulty of just not even knowing where to start, where to find the resources, how to connect, how to get answers, how to get support. Sounds like you're now doing some things to help make that better available for other families. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts there? Yeah, for several years I've done some, um, which I call them transition meetings for parents uh, through Clearwater Academy or just friends. And I have a two-page document of different things for parents to be aware of that sometimes you don't even think about. You know, there's the top of, you know, special needs trust, guardianship, conservatorship, camp options, birth control, vocational rehab, day programs. There are just so many things that once you leave the school system, and nobody tells you these things, I don't know where the breakdown in communication is from school to these parents. But a lot of parents are just being kind of thrown out like, best of luck, without any resources or even where to turn. So I just started this little business called Transitionally Speaking, and I've done meetings on Zoom and in person. Um, Recently, I sat with a neighbor and a mom to go through a Medicaid waiver application online and Social Security application online and just you just have no idea what you're getting yourself into once they become an adult. Because in my mind, I kept saying, it'll get so much easier when he's older. And the truth is, it's much harder. It's so much harder. harder. And, and then there's another layer to this, which we haven't really covered, but you brought up the special needs trust, grantership, all of these things. And it's not a lifelong problem. It is beyond your lifetime mm-hmm. problem. And that's... That's got to be a hard thing as a parent of a special needs child. He's going to outlive you. But who's going to provide care for him? And that's the big question. Most, I would say, parents, you know, and I'm speaking for moms because I'm a mom. We just can never die because who will take care of our kids? And and no one will take care of them like we, we do, but we have to plan and prepare for yeah. some, you know, because we are not going to live forever <laughs> as much as we'd like to. And that's the most terrifying thing for most parents, I would say, is what's going to happen when I'm gone. Wow. It's really something that honestly, as a mom of kids that I don't have a special needs child in this way, I just never thought about it until I have my first conversation with you. And it's, yeah, I would say it's got to be a weight. Is- it's, it's a huge weight, and this is a population that's very underrepresented, um, very vulnerable, 
they're just, you know, and there's, I think it's like 1% of the population in the United States has developmental disabilities. And that may seem like a lot, but it's a significant amount because I'm sure everybody in this audience knows somebody with special needs or yeah, multiple people right. with special needs. Yeah, right. And maybe we just haven't so, thought it through enough. There's a quick question bringing that up. Like you said, if there's only 1% that specifically have those special needs or those developmental challenges, that means 99% of us are surrounding that 1%. Um, I love what you're doing with Transitionally Speaking, this small business of yours to help other families connect the dots, find the resources, think things through. Do you have any advice for those of us who aren't the ones raising the special needs child, but maybe we just want to support a friend or, or loved one who is? Are there things that you could tell us that have been helpful for you, sometimes not helpful? Are there things that maybe we shouldn't do? How can we provide support to your community that's that's dealing with these difficulties that we probably take for granted every day? I would say if you know of a parent, and I know it's hard to go and babysit somebody's kid who you don't understand, but a trip to Target or the grocery store by yourself is a treat, frankly. And even if you could give a parent or a mom an hour of time just where she could, maybe just take a shower or take a walk, but just notice them and tell them that they're doing a good job. Remind them that you see how hard it is. Right. At least, yeah, just the words of encouragement. They they can mean, it's like when you're walking down, you're having a bad day and you're walking in a mall or the airport or wherever and somebody just genuinely looks at you and you catch a smile and it just lightens your load. Yeah. That small thing that becomes so significant. And you're right. It, it is yeah. hard to offer somebody like it, it might be overwhelming for some people to feel like I I don't want to be responsible if something should happen while yeah. I'm watching them so that they could have time. Like it may be fearful for some people, but for those people who maybe do have skill sets or training or whatever, or feel confident enough to give uh, an hour of time, I can imagine that would be a huge lift. It's it's like being the mom of a newborn, but for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years where you, you're kind of right. tied to your child and, and that break to take a shower really does feel like a massive luxury. Kim, thank you for sharing this story with us. My heart goes out to you. Um, I think you've really opened our eyes to a lot of us to to maybe see with a little more compassion, look for more ways that we can help, and try to maybe even find the right advocacy voices to make sure this, this population is not continually so underrepresented and underserved and, and left alone to navigate all these difficult things. I volunteer a lot at my kids' schools through PTA and different things, and the more involved I get, the more complicated I realize it is because mm-hmm. special needs, like you said, even special needs, there's not one size fits all, even within a special needs community. You could mm-hmm. have you could have two students yeah. or two kids with the same diagnosis that wouldn't need the exact same care and treatment and an education plan. And it's so complicated and so overwhelming. It can be very exhausting, but thank you for sticking with it. And thank you for taking what you've learned through your own journey and being willing to help other people. To me, that's one of the most beautiful fruits of resilience. When you go through something that almost knocks you down or maybe does knock you down time after time, and then you get back up and say, maybe I could help the next person. Maybe there's another mom that I can guide and make her not quite so overwhelmed, even though I can't fix the whole situation. And to me, that's a beautiful giving side 
of resilience when you're willing to give back through the difficulty life has given you. So thank you, Kim, for that. You're, you're doing a wonderful job, and I know you've inspired all of us today. Well, makes my you heart so ache. I appreciate it. Yeah, it makes my heart ache and feel a little bit of uh, a communal burden of there's got to be something we can do and to realize that there's people out there who, just like you said, Kim, feel like I can never die. And mm-hmm. I, as a mom, I get that feeling like, no one's going to provide for my kid the way I'm providing for my kid. And yeah, I just, I can't imagine the weight of taking care of the day-to-day needs and yet being worried about your own long-term health care. And your own sanity, you never, let's be honest, yeah. just your own grit yeah, to be able to make care. it through day after day. And the one thing is, is that you never really get to retire. No. No. Yeah, and like, you know, the, the grief... You know, we talk you talk about grief a lot on your program. Yeah. And, and that happens, too, with special needs families. You know, yeah. you grieve over what could have been. The opportunities they won't have. Come. Yeah. Yes. And it's a burden. It's a, it's a big burden to carry. But, you know, we love these kids. They're some of the purest souls. Well, and, and you said it at the very beginning. To share. Everyone's just been drawn to Sam. Mm-hmm. Everyone's always been drawn to, to that spirit, to that. We say we say the word special, and it is. There's something special about these kids. I think our challenge to me and Michelle, to all of us listening today, is go find the parent of the child with special needs and do something, whatever that is, whether it's yeah, offer to babysit, absolutely. drop off a meal, send a text, words of encouragement, pat on the back. I think all of us could do a little more. I mean, we, we see them. We watch. We all think, oh, my goodness, I'd be so exhausted. Well, let's do something about it. Let's make today yeah. the day that we find some way, small or large, to really express our support and our gratitude for those who go through such difficulty to raise these beautiful children that just have such unique and special needs. Absolutely. Kim, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And I'm excited to be able to promote, uh, transitionally speaking, and being able to help. And what a resource you are to other parents that probably feel so lost. Absolutely. So I hope so. so. Yeah, I appreciate that you're doing that as well. Thank you again. And thank you for being a listener that was willing to share your story. And that's what we're always looking for each week as we walk through these journeys of ups and downs and highs and lows that always have rich lessons and and stories of human connection and just the capability we all have to rise above. I'm so glad that she was willing to come on and share with us. This is wonderful. These are exactly the stories we want to hear. The stories we're looking for. So, So if you're listening, you probably have a story or maybe 10, but at least one that you could share that would help us help all of us learn and grow together. So if you're willing to share your story, please give us the chance to bring you on this show. We would love nothing more than to do that. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, Instagram Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, or you can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? 
I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.